agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I am joined again by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to The Politics Guys, Ken. It's good to be back. Now, I wanted to go on record, though, that, you know, last week I did the, the show with Jay and I didn't once call him Ken. And I think that was a win. I just <laughs> Right. That's pretty good. Yeah. He, he doesn't remind a lot of people of me. So you had some wind at your back there. <laughs> well, you know, we get so used to like we have the, the, the kind of the lineups that we often do. And so in your head, you get into this space, right? You're, you're surrounded by the way that you do it. It can be easy. Like you're just in that zone. Right. Uh, but uh, but it's, so it's good to be doing it with you. Good to be doing it uh, two times uh, in a row. So for listeners, what I want to start out with letting us know is kind of what we're going to get to. And and there's a lot on the deck. Ken and I were talking this uh, before we started recording the show. Uh, And, you know, we're going to get to what we get to. And then anything that we don't get to, uh, as always now, is going to be on our simultaneously released bonus show. So if you'd like to have even more of myself and Ken, or maybe you'd like to get some additional episodes with me and Jay from last week, uh, you can do that by becoming a supporter of the Politics Guys. You can head to politicsguys.com slash support, or you can head to patreon.com slash politicsguys uh, to be able to get into that. Uh, so what are we going to be uh, tackling this week? Well, we're going to start off with the controversy over Trump's Wall Street Journal opinion piece and the pieces that went around that. Uh, Then we're going to move on to talking about the DOJ's memo on school boards and then make a nice transition over to talking about the gubernatorial race in Virginia uh, as it comes up for a vote next week. Then we'll move on to the mansion deal here and what's happening with that now that Biden is out of the country and what the path forward for that looks like. Now, we're probably going to get to those, uh, but anything after this will probably be on the bonus show, but we'll see. Uh, we also want to take a look at the recent Southwest Airlines anti-vaccine case, which just got tossed by a federal judge. We'll talk a little bit there, too, about OSHA and the OMB. Uh, then, if we have time, we're going to talk about Rittenhouse and uh, the judge this week ruling on some of the procedural moves of who can be called what. Are they victims? Are they looters? Are they rioters? We'll be getting into that. Uh, And then if we have time, we'll uh, get into some additional things like the ban and contempt vote, kind of revisiting that from last week with Ken uh, and maybe talking a little bit about qualified immunity for police officers. So that's what we got coming up for you on deck for the politics, guys. But before we get to our first piece, which is going to be Trump, uh, we're going to take a brief commercial break. Well, welcome back. Uh, Thank you for uh, sticking with us during the commercial break. Uh, So, Ken, this past Thursday, the Wall Street Journal ran an opinion piece in an apparent objection uh, to, well, their earlier opinion piece on the Pennsylvania 2020 Supreme Court. So let me walk listeners through this if you if you haven't, yeah, I don't know if you've been living under a rock. Uh, on the 24th, the Wall Street Journal editorial board argued that Pennsylvania needed a better judiciary after its Supreme Court effectively overrode the legislature's deadline for mail-in ballots in the 2020 election. The Wall Street Journal noted that while this didn't end up causing chaos, 
chaos, that was only because Biden won the state by more votes than those ballots, specifically 80,555. So far, so good. So the Supreme Court uh, of Pennsylvania erred in its judgment, and the Wall Street Journal has the right to call it out. Well, then, on the 27th, or this past Wednesday, former President Trump decided it was time to weigh in. The Wall Street Journal ran his opinion piece, and in this... Uh, he argues that the Wall Street Journal's editorial board, that earlier opinion, uh, was off base because, quote, the election was rigged, end quote. He goes then through a number of items that range, and I'm going to be generous here, Ken, from dubious to outright false. Many other outlets have already reported on this, including the Washington Post. Um, but the best that I can tell, I think the best for most people, is most of this stuff, Ken, is coming from a group called Audit the Vote PA. And, and there's really nothing new about that. But yeah, I, I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, if you ran it through a, a plagiarism tr- check, I, I don't think it's going to come through clean, most of this is coming from that dubious organization. So that led to a bunch of questions more generally in the media this week, asking why did the Wall Street Journal print Trump's opinion in the first place if it's just a bunch of lies? And even if they did print it, shouldn't they have required or thought it necessary to contextualize it and explain things? Uh, Now, what is even more interesting about this is, is then this week later, right today, uh, the uh, uh, this, uh, the Wall Street Journal runs an editorial explaining why they ran it. And in short, what they argue is that we ha- we're going to run these things because that's this position's already out there, and he has a right to respond to what we're doing. That's what kind of a free and open uh, uh, society is about. So there's a couple of things I think can we can talk about on this front. One, and that's something that Jay and I talked about last week on the bonus show, and that was the future of the Republican Party. And I know that's a lot of what has been banted about this week. Um, and I think to the best that I can tell, and, and I'm not a part of it because it means uh, uh, Trump is better than the existential crisis of really any Democrat. But what I think we're trying to get at here is, is in a free society, how do we deal with lies? And, you know, that's a that's a hard question. It's a big question. And if, if for listeners, if you want some additional insight on this, I highly recommend a book. Uh, and can I know if you've read this one or not. It's called The Constitution of Knowledge. Uh, which t- which is specifically trying to get at this idea of in a liberal society where we value openness, you know, how do we deal with wrong opinions that float around and, and how ought they to be allowed to float around? And I think in the era of Trump, there's this kind of renewed scholarly focus or at least popular attention on the scholarly focuses on conspiracy theories and lies in a liberal society. And so the question keeps coming up here. What do we do? Do you contextualize them? Do you ban them? And as much as I hate Trump, I have a really hard time coming down on a universal liberal principle to shut up people who lie. So, okay, I've talked a bunch here, Ken. What do you think about this? Well, you've asked a few, you've asked less questions at varying levels of abstraction there. I know. Okay. I've only got six questions and yeah, they're yeah, going all yeah. up and down the hierarchy of abstraction. That's right. Uh, so, so I think the most specific questions you asked are, what, what do I think about the Wall Street Journal's decision yeah, to let's start there. publish start Trump's there. letter? Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. And then and then you ask more generally, you know, what's what 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 what's the role of of the law in policing truth in, in a free society? 
society or even not um, the law but what ought to be kind of our you know our our liberal nature to like should you know what should the wall street journal have potentially done yeah. what's the general principle that they could hang hang their hat yeah. on because i well, think sometimes so, we get so yeah. tied up in the specific that we forget yeah. that like hey if we're going to make this a rule it's going to be have to be more general right so anyway i'm sorry yeah. i'm taking although, us although in this although in this case i actually um would would think that i wouldn't agree with that i i think that the way we have to think about the decision of the wall street journal to publish trump's letter um can't really flow from general principles and has to be thought of specifically because of one specific fact which is that trump is a former president of the united states mm -hmm. and i i think that does put some um extra um uh reason that that gives an extra reason um, for a paper like the Wall Street Journal to consider publishing a letter that if it came from just about anybody else, you know, there'd be no reason to publish it. Like the, the obvious thing to do would be not publish it. Right. So, so if the so, vote sends in something, you're going to say, yeah, yeah no, yeah, they're, they're just not, not going to publish it because it wouldn't meet their standards of what they would publish. So I, I think if you're thinking, well, the only reason to publish it um, and to go against the normal editorial judgment that would say we don't publish letters that are filled with falsehoods. And, and give give them a platform, um, then uh, um, I think that that um, changes um, the nature of, of whether it needs to be contextualized or not. So I, I think this is a kind of unique, you know, in law, we call that sui generis um, kind of situation where I, I think we might need a different theory about what the newspaper's responsibility is when they receive a crazy letter from a, from a former president. Um, because I, I think if they received a similarly crazy letter from anyone else, it would be a no-brainer. Like, the, the, just don't publish. The Wall Street Journal gets lots and lots of letters that it doesn't publish. It even gets some letters that have uh, merit that it doesn't have room to publish. But it normally would not uh, publish a letter with, with no merit um, uh, and, and filled with falsehoods. Um, and, and remember, also, the Wall Street Journal um, is not a, a, a public forum. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a newspaper that is curated. Right. All, all of the content that goes into the Wall Street Journal goes, including the letters in the letters to the editor page, um, goes in because the, the Wall Street Journal is making editorial choices to put that in. And there's lots of people who present um, um, letters or, or other, other or news tips or whatever to the Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal opts um, not to put that in. So I, I don't think we should be applying the standard of openness here that we would apply to a, a public forum. I think it's really, it's a standard that governs editorial judgment. And it seems perfectly appropriate that a mainstream newspaper that um, seeks to be looked at as um, credible um, should be making judgments about um, what, what it will publish or not publish based on the credibility of the information. So I think this is one of the things that maybe, let me, let's go up one level of abstraction, because you're kind of taking it there and talking about this being, it's a unique circumstance in that the only thing that makes this potentially coming across the Wall Street Journal's barrier is the fact that it's coming from a former president. And th that brings us to this question of, so there's a longstanding question of what is the right relationship between uh, the press and, and, and government, right? And, and officials or former officials. And to what extent ought there be contextualization for uh, what's put out by government officials. So, I mean, this this has long been a question. As a matter of fact, it becomes even becomes a bigger question as you get deeper and deeper into the 21st century because the amount of time we spend actually reading 
the words of government officials or individuals running for office keeps coming down. I mean, here's, I don't know if you know this, but as time has gone on, the direct unmediated information from candidates and officials has decreased through these kinds of official sources. And more and more, there's more and more contextualization. And there's been a long question about whether that's a good thing or not, because then you have to decide you basically have to have this kind of editorial decision all the time about how do we contextualize and who do we contextualize which way. Um, so what I'm hearing you say is you think in this case they should have contextualized it in the first instance. Absolutely, yes, um, because I think that when you talk about the obligations of, of, of the media, I mean, again, that's going to be more of a question of journalistic ethics, I think, than of law, because there is a, a fairly big First Amendment um, overhang here that says the the government um, shouldn't interfere. And of course, the Wall Street Journal is not in any legal trouble, you know, no matter no, which right. way they make these choices. But I think as a matter of journalistic ethics, um, the, the primary obligation of, of the news media is to tell the truth. And so if they publish information that they know is untrue and they publish it in a way that um, you know could could mislead readers into believing that it is true, um, then that's unethical. And and I think in that sense, I think it was unethical for the Wall Street Journal to to publish um, the Trump letter without putting it in context, because many readers of the Wall Street Journal reading that letter with no additional context provided would get the idea that the Wall Street Journal is publishing it because the Wall Street Journal um, 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 doesn't um, disagree with the 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 the, the, the crazy the crazy statement of facts that's set forth in the letter. And now, so if that was... I, I do want to put it... I, I thought about that, and so I'm glad you bring that up. But I mean, in one sense, I mean, one of the things that most reputable uh, outlets like the Wall Street Journal note is, is that the things that are happening in their opinion piece, as long as they're not coming from their own editorial board, don't necessarily represent their own views. And so in this case, you know, Trump is in fact attempt... You know, he's poking at a previous Wall Street Journal editorial itself, you know, kind of already taking aim at the fact that they were saying that the the, the election was not rigged. So if they were to then, I mean, in essence, do they get kind of two chance? I mean, if you're going to publish it and you're going to let somebody then uh, disagree with what your already stated position is, is it potentially problematic then to then add context to what you think is wrong, but you're still going to let them state it because you want them to have a chance as a public official to respond to what you said. So this, in other words, yeah. I hear what you're saying, and it might have, and I, well, I, I, I'm kind I, of there yeah, on I mean, like the, the if it was yeah. the first instance, but since he's responding to something, do you think that changes it or not? Is, I guess No, no, because there's a difference between facts and opinions. And, you know, if it was an opinion that was responding to an opinion that they published, maybe they should just let him have his say. But it's actually lies responding to facts. And there's absolutely, it's, it's not only not an obligation of the media, it's it's a failure of journalistic ethics to put facts on a level playing field with lies, um, and and so the idea, well, if we're going to publish facts, we have to give equal time to lies. Um, that that's a failure of journalistic ethics, and so yep. I actually think it was unethical for them to publish this letter for that reason. It, it wasn't an opinion. So let me talk to you about that because here's another element in which I thought about this. Right. So let's talk about climate change just for just two seconds as I thought about this. Right. Mm -hmm. So here we have that kind of okay we have. I mean, there, there's really no question that there is human caused climate change, right? This is an established set of information in the scientific community, right? And there it is. 
But we still generally see, and this is not just the the Wall Street Journal, but we see all kinds of outlets. They always want to put it in terms of, well, you have these kind of differing positions and you've got to balance that that out. And so some of these other outlets, when they were talking about how, well, you know, the Wall Street Journal shouldn't have allowed uh, Trump to kind of have this response. And I think, yeah, but your own outlets will do this in similar ways in other areas, right? So again, if you're giving kind of this uh, balanced amount of time to the uh, you know climate denial, uh, it, it seems to me that you still are doing that question of well we're gonna we're gonna take not as accepted or outright lies on a, on a subject and we're gonna elevate it so that you have this point counterpoint and that seems to be a typical pattern in in, in modern media. Well, I don't think that's a typical pattern in legitimate journalism. I don't, I don't think the the New York Times, um, you know, gives equal time to climate deniers. Um, you know, there, there are there are small aspects of the um, um, climate change um, over which there's bona fide scientific debate about the the mechanisms and the speed and and things like that. And there's room for giving. Um, 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 conflicting scientific opinions, but you know, if 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 I don't remember the New York Times ever letting somebody publish something that says uh, um, there's no such thing as man-made uh, 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 climate change, there's it's it's a hoax. It's really just caused by cow farts and volcanoes or whatever. You know, you, you only you only you only read that in the in the fringe media. You don't re- read that in the legitimate media. And you know, they all have a First Amendment right to publish. But if they want to adhere to journalistic standards and journalistic ethics and be considered legitimate and credible papers which I think the Wall Street Journal does, um, you know, then I, th- I think they, they have an obligation not to publish lies. The, their number one first obligation is to publish the truth. And it's only really a secondary um, uh, obligation to allow there to be um, um, different perspectives and different opinions offered um, in areas where there actually are differences of opinion. Okay, so now here's my, I guess, my last question, and and this is one that I think comes up a lot in terms of that, like, you know, the biggest concept of this, which is says, look, in a a liberal open society, we allow the crackpots to run around. So what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, of course, crackpots can run around. But if you want to be taken seriously, you're going to you're going to screen them out in, in your particular kinds of outlets. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think that, um, you know, uh, Alex Jones or Breitbart or people like that should should go to prison, but they're not the legitimate media. And if and if the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, wants to be considered like a competitor of the New York Times and the Washington Post and not be considered a competitor of, of Alex Jones and Breitbart, you know, they should <laughs> they, they should do they should do better than they did this week. Okay. So now I guess my my last question about this, and then this is kind of a take on, uh, a take on is, you know, so uh, uh, last week in the bonus show, I'd mentioned that, you know, Jay kind of uh, was arguing that he he still thinks that Trump overall is going to be uh, better than the kind of the existential crisis of any particular Democrat. And we, we talked about that a little bit here. Do you see that playing into the decision for the Wall Street Journal to run this? In other words, do you think the Wall Street Journal runs this in part because if they don't, uh, and and Trump is just such a central portion of the the, uh, Republican base now, that it it would just get them kind of knocked out of uh, of contention of anything? Do you think that plays in here at all? Uh, I was curious about your thought on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're between a rock and a hard place there. I have some sympathy for the situation they were in, although I don't think they handled it right. But, you know, as I said before, I, I think they probably did make the right decision um, to print the letter rather than to censor the letter, um, even though I think they, they should have either they should have not given any column space to a letter like that if it would have come from anyone else. But the, the significance of it, the newsworthiness of it is the fact that it's coming from Trump, you know, not, not, the, not the things that said in it. And, um, and, you know, I know in their, in their follow-up editorial today, they largely made that argument. And, mm -hmm. and they said, you know, we, we, we had to publish this because it was from Trump. And in fact, because people have to see what, what Trump is saying, they even used the word bananas and said, you know, yes. people have to see that, that Trump is saying all this stuff that's bananas and that's, what's newsworthy about it. Well, I mean, I, I basically think they're right about that. I, I think the decision to publish was right, but, but yet I don't think any of that, um, uh, justifies the decision not to contextualize it. You know, I think if, if the goal was, well, people, we have to cover what Trump is up to and this is what he's up to. So we have to cover it. And he's speaking in his own words here. So we got to let people read his own words. Um, I agree with all that, but I, I don't, I don't think that means that you publish his lies as if they weren't lies. Um, I think you still have to, you know, contextualize it by saying everything he's saying here is a lie. These are not questions of opinion. These are these are these are um, facts that um, courts have ruled on in every case, um, uh, or where there's literally no evidence. So that some of his claims that courts haven't ruled on, it's because they're just so purely made up that they couldn't have even been presented to a court without the lawyer presenting him getting disbarred for just making stuff up. Yeah. Um, and and so um, uh, so so you know I think they, they needed to explain that because not all of their readers would would get that. Um, uh, you know some of their readers are Trumpers, right? And so if if the readers are Trumpers and they're reading a letter from Trump and it's just published without any any context, um, then I think th those readers are going to basically take what's in that letter to be true. And and th that the Wall Street Journal must know that. And so they have an obligation to, to do something about that. But I, I but I, I started that by saying I think they were right to publish the letter. I just think they should have contextualized it. I hear you. You know, and, and one of the things that's difficult is, you know, and, and we even make these kinds of choices on the show. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, for this particular one, you know, I wasn't originally thinking that we were going to be talking anything about Trump on uh, this show. <laughs> right. right. Uh, and it comes in. And so then you have this kind of question about, well, you know, in this case, we are attempting to contextualize something and, 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 and we're taking a particular opinion on the facts. Um, but of course, we're also giving airtime to uh, to Trump in a way, right? Now, again, in our case, yeah. like, what is that? You know, I mean, right? Well, yeah. yeah, we are. Well, uh, and, I, and I think the Wall Street Journal should also. I, I'm not saying they shouldn't have. I'm just saying they should they, that they should always remember that their primary obligation is to um, to print the truth. And I think if Trump's newsworthy, they should cover Trump because he's newsworthy. I'm not saying they should should censor coverage of him, but I but I think they I think they got to they got to make sure they're not uh, misleading their readers. Well, and I, I don't think this is going anywhere anytime soon because I, I can't imagine that uh, that Trump doesn't end up running for uh, president again. So I think we're going to be back. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think so. And Which it, is one more reason that the, he is newsworthy and they do have to cover him, I yeah, think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well. We will cover that, though, when it when it comes. <laughs> uh, but 
I think what we should probably do next, Ken, is is maybe uh, uh, change gears and talk a little bit about uh, the the Department of Justice memo on school boards, because not only has this been a big issue in and of itself, but it's connected to another uh, uh, topic that we're going to talk about a little bit later, which is the Virginia gubernatorial race. So before we move on to the DOJ's memo on school boards, we're going to pause for a brief break from our sponsors. Well, welcome back after the break. Uh, So what we're going to move on to, Ken, is we're going to talk about the DOJ's memo on school boards. And so on October 4th, Mike Garland uh, issued a one-page memorandum discussing, quote, the disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff, end quote. The goal was to partner the FBI into looking into these types of harassment with local law enforcement. Now, where does this come in? That's October 4. Well, this past week, Garland met with Congress and is facing pressure from Republicans that this is an effectively an attack on parents. Now, Garland has reiterated it is only about, quote, concerns about violence, threats of violence and other criminal criminal conduct. That's all it's about, end quote. But. Part of this appears to be a bit of anger in its form of timing, because at the end of September, right before the Garland memo, the National School Board Association sent a letter to the Biden office arguing that these threats constituted terrorism. It used some pretty strong language. As a matter of fact, that language was so strong that the board of directors of the National School Board Association later backtracked that and released a letter in which it, quote, regrets and apologizes for the letter due to its unfortunate language, end quote. So Garland, in kind of responding to this, has said that the letter that was subsequently sent does not change the association's concern about violence with threats of violence. And further, that there's nothing in his memo that had to make any kind of analogy with terrorism. Uh, He says that it alters some of the language in the letter that we did not rely on and is contained in my own memorandum. The only thing that the Justice Department is concerned about is violence and threats of violence. So This has become kind of a big issue, not only just in terms of this. It was a big issue this week in Congress. It's also been a big issue in campaigning and and, and thinking towards uh, uh, the midterms. And Ken, I mean, A, I think it's interesting to talk about it in terms of this. But one of the things that I think we're continuing to see is, is that there is a discrepancy, at least in parts of the country, between parents' values and schools' values. And I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing some of the hostility we are from at, at, at least some, some Republican sides of the board, of course, trying to score some points. What are your thoughts on this? You know, I, I think that that's it, the whole thing is a bit more ginned up than, than real. Um, you know, it, I mean, I guess the main flashpoints for what you were calling the, the 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 conflicts between parents' values and school board values seem to me to fall primarily into two subject areas, which are um, COVID, either masking or vaccine mandates, mm-hmm. and uh, and then um, the critical race theory. Um, well, yeah, and in some places, this idea of sexuality. Oh, and yeah, sexuality. That's the other one, right? The the, the bathroom bills and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so there's a the few small areas. Now, I, I think, you know, school wait, boards. I, mean, I don't yeah. think you mean oh, those are a small area. I mean, those are pretty like heated uh, kind of culture war issues going on right now, though, don't you think? 
No, I don't really think so. I mean, oh, okay. I think that, that yeah, I, th I think that, you know, these these are issues where the public other than maybe the transgender stuff, which may be a little bit more evenly divided. The other stuff, I think the public is overwhelmingly on the same side that the school boards are on. But it's just that you have, um, uh, you know, very vocal um, minorities ginning up um, issues um, that to just mainly to to to, to um, rally their own base, you know, that, that um, you know, so that the 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 Trump wing or the Marjorie Taylor Greene wing of the Republican Party thinks that if you can convince um, people who don't know anything about what goes on in schools that that, that kids are being indoctrinated with critical race theory or mm -hmm. something like that, that, you know, even though, A, that's totally false, and, and B, um, parents who actually have kids in schools know that that's totally false, um, that there's, there's still, um, you know, a certain segment of the population that's very receptive to that message, and so it gets them riled up, and to the extent that they actually can be convinced to go um, disrupt school board meetings or, or beat up other parents at these meetings or whatever, then that makes national news. Um, I, I think that it's all astroturf, really. This is all stuff that's being ginned up by pressure groups who think that it'll somehow benefit Republicans by um, keeping a, a very uh, aggravated base. But but I don't, I don't think there's any, I don't think any of this stuff is, is very real or very organic, although it's being um, um, definitely, I, I think it is having an electoral impact in Virginia um, and, you know, maybe it will in some other places, but I, but I think that it, 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 it was implemented as a political strategy rather than as any kind of um, grassroots concerns. And, and I think most, most parents of kids in schools um, are not sharing very many concerns with these kind of violent protesters. I, now, you know, I don't often say this, so I, I say this with kindness and love in yeah. the sense that I think you I think you might be in a, in a bubble a little bit when it comes to, to thinking that there's not really that disconnect there. So let me give you just a little bit of data and, and then maybe you can kind of respond and say if you still think this fits or doesn't. So, for right. example, one of the reasons I think about that disconnect is if you take a look at Gallup polls uh, in both August and September, as schools were coming back, uh, as a matter of fact, only about, you know, from national samples, only about 48% of parents said that they thought that children ought to wear masks and uh, faculty members ought to wear masks in school. That was a number that was really kind of surprising to me. Um, likewise, when you take a look at some of the AP's work, uh, even as you get a little bit uh, further into uh, the school year, it only comes up to about 6 in 10. Uh, and likewise, we see similar kinds of splits on some of these other issues, as you were already kind of note, noting some of the, the, the trans rights things. Um, so I, I wonder if maybe it could be that, the, you know, in the area that you're looking at, you know, it's easy to pull kind of, a, you know, you take what is around you. And think of that as being kind of the sample. And I think for me, the more I've looked at some of that data, it doesn't fit my own positions, but it, it, it I think, seems to point to maybe a, a harsher divide than many of us uh, would assume. So what would you think about? Maybe I'm just cherry picking the data. I don't know. But what no, do you no, think? I, I hadn't heard the data, but I, I could certainly believe it. But I, but I, I, again, not every school in this country has mask requirements, right? So right, right, when, right. When, when, when you say, you know, only half the parents want mask requirements. And that's a national sample, right? That's so you're a national right sample. to talk about. Right. Yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I probably only half the schools in the country have mask requirements. So when, when you, when you look at the schools that have the mask requirements, where the 
these 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 um, these these provocateurs are showing up and shouting and and giving Hitler salutes and and punching out other parents at those school board meetings. I, I really um, have to believe that if if the school board has adopted these um, uh, mask requirements in those communities, it's because that's what those communities want, and that these 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 disruptive parents are more trying to stage a political stunt. I get it that there's plenty of places in the country where parents don't want mask requirements. I, I teach in Kentucky, and most of the counties in Kentucky don't have mask requirements, right? right? So in in the places you know where the, that 48 percent of the country lives that, that that doesn't really doesn't want the mask requirements, I, I think it's pretty likely they don't have them. And and in the and in the places where they have them, I think it's because the the public supports them and and, the, and supports what the school boards are doing. And of course, there's going to be a few counterexamples. I'm not saying that's going to be 100 percent true. But the, but the fact that only a little more than half of parents want mask requirements doesn't seem to me to undermine the view that in places that have mask requirements, most parents want mask requirements. I guess my question then is, is so I hear what you're kind of saying is, look, the distribution of people, they're going to be living around other people who are probably like them, and therefore their schools will end up most likely having the preference of those areas. And, you know, and and you might say, well, look, that's federalism at work, right? That's, that's when this works. Am I hearing, is that, am I getting that part at least correct? Yeah, yeah, except, yeah, I say that, but but I was really focusing, and I, I, that's right, what you just said, or at least that, that reflects my view, but 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 I was really, I think, trying to make a slightly different point, which oh, is that, please, um, yeah, yeah that the, 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 um, the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the Tucker Carlson crowd, the, 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 the people who want to, you know, make this like a, a big flashpoint in, in, in the national media and in political turnout, you know, they're purposely picking the, the school districts, um, you know, that are in, you know, what we might call, you know, the, the, the blue Purple. states, the blue neighborhoods. Yeah. No, I think the ones where, you know, the, the ones that they want to turn into punching bags, you know, they want to turn a, a, into a punching bag, a, a school district where it's a school district that might be run by Democrats, where most of the people who live there might be Democrats, where well, the people who live there on balance, you know, want mask requirements and, and the school board is giving them the mask requirement. But then the reason you're reading about these confrontations um, on, or on the Internet or, or seeing it on Fox News is because because um, it's because there's sort of a conscious political effort um, to try to um, create flashpoints in those places. It's it's not that the it's not that the people who live in the in the rural Kentucky are having to deal with mask requirements and are showing up at their own school boards. You know that's just not happening. But but you know people are it's sort of the outsiders. You know it's like these outside provocateurs who are trying to create media events by um, showing up in districts they don't live in or they don't have kids in, or maybe they can recruit the one person who lives in that district to make trouble. But but I, I, I just don't think these districts where you're seeing incidents on television are actually districts where the population is very divided on these issues. I think these are districts where the population supports the school board and that the purpose of these media events is not to change policy in those districts. It's to create national um, uh, images for, for Fox News and things like that to, to influence um, uh, voter turnout and to energize a voter base. Well, let me talk about I mean, you used a couple of terms there and, I, and they're useful and it's helpful for your argument, but maybe not everybody might know it. Uh, one is you were talking about, you know, well, I don't think this is grassroots. I think it's astroturfing. So in, in uh, politics and political science, this idea of grassroots means that, you know, general people are the, are the instigators for a particular um, uh, movement or push, right? As opposed to like elite theory, which suggests that there is uh, uh, individuals who kind of 
gin up uh, support. And then there can be sometimes when it appears to be grassroots, but in fact is coming from an elite. And that's what you're talking here in terms of astroturfing. Astroturfing is this idea of, well, it's meant to mimic, to look like, uh, you know, kind of grassroots efforts, but really at its base, it's not, it's not alive. It's not real. It's been, it's been put in uh, with kind of a, a purpose. And, and in this case, you know, you're kind of pointing at, at Tucker Carlson and, the, and that kind of deal. Now, I, I, well, I, w- I would say here is, you know, uh, it's hard. I mean, I don't have any now, you know, on, on the more granular level, I don't have any data about these specific areas where you're having these kinds of playouts. So, you know, your hypothesis here that, look, this is astroturfing and we're kind of cherry picking the areas where it is, is, is the, is what creates kind of this, um, seeming, uh, uh, grassroots movement specifically for kind of a Mayhewian position taking, right? So that in this midterm, we can have positions on which to take because, you know, for, for congressional elections, for the most part, if there's going to be changes in positions, we're not changing them on big rational reasons. We're really curious about where people, you know, take a side. It's why even today, you know, it, what what does somebody's uh, Roe v. Wade for dog catcher matter? Uh, but we care about that in a sense because we use those uh, issue positions as a marker for who we're going to vote for. Um, so I think on one hand, so so there, I think we're kind of getting more to your deal. So I, I don't know if I can I have any evidence to refute it. I, I guess, though, my alternative hypothesis, and again, I'm not sure what the data would be, would be to suggest that I wonder if part of what's springing up here, and it could still be the case, I mean, the two things wouldn't necessarily need to be mutually exclusive, is that the Tucker Carlson's in the worlds are trying to... Um, uh, uh, gin on is kind of the purple location and say, well, we're going to have these kinds of disagreements. We're going to gravitate into these locations and, and take it. And I wonder if that's not actually where we're seeing this. And I, and, and, and the reason I ask this or think about it this way, Ken, is I, I wonder if one of the problems, if schools aren't a little bit of a microcosm of the, this issue of, we want to have this kind of these singular values when we have public goods that come forward. And I don't know if we can always get to those singular goods that we, that we think. And, 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 and again, I, I recognize that I'm coming from a, a, a position that's unique. I talked with uh, Jay about this unique at the position, right? Uh, and, and, and I'll be open about it here too, right? So my kids are homeschooled um, in part because I want them to have a particular set of values that I recognize won't necessarily be the same as my neighbors um, necessarily. I mean, they, they could be or could not be. Uh, but I think sometimes in these kind of democratic systems where we want to have uh, public goods provided, we end up having to find common values. And I think that in that common value, if we're trying to put it everywhere, we end up kind of watering down the things that we want. And instead we end up with these unfortunate disconnects. Like, you know, these, you know, no one's going to ever change anybody's opinion on this. And should we, but since we're, since we have this only one location for the way that we educate students, we end up having these major conflicts. And I wonder if, we, if, if that's not part of the problem, the way that we do these public goods. Now, now, now I'm probably talking too conservative for you, though. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, I respect your right to homeschool and you seem, you seem like someone capable of doing it. Um, I, I think a lot of kids who do get homeschooled, um, actually, their parents aren't necessarily capable of doing it. And, and that means they don't get 
educated. Um, so I, I think that's a serious uh, issue in, in many cases. But but that's a bigger issue and sort of a different issue. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we were talking about the vaccine stuff, but I would also want to talk a little bit about the um, this critical race theory thing, because I think that's one where it's even clearer that um, it's a totally phony issue, right? That, that you know, maybe, maybe vaccines is something that some, or masks, people really, some people really feel strongly about that. Now, critical race theory, the, the number of public K through 12 schools that are teaching anything that could be called critical race theory in the whole United States is something you could probably count on your fingers. You know, it, it's literally something that doesn't exist. And yet, um, you know, because there's this phony ginned up uh, political issue where, um, you know, I guess the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world will think, well, if you throw around a phrase like critical race theory, you can kind of get all the you can get all the racists worked up that there's something sinister going on, and you never have to really be specific about well what, what is critical race effect. theory? Yeah, well yeah, what is what is critical race theory? What is it that they're teaching? What what is it that we object to about that? Um, you know, the closest we've come to that, I guess, in terms of getting any specific bill of particulars, is that this uh, surrogate for um, Youngkin in the in the Virginia governor's race is out there complaining that in an AP English class for college-bound 12th graders, they're teaching the novel uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning ghost story, and, uh, um, and and that that's supposedly critical race theory. And I think that's the only teaching material I've ever heard of that's even um, been singled out and identified as an example of, of this critical race theory that's supposedly being taught. And yet, you know, there's a significant number of voters who may be able to be worked up into a frenzy by by hearing this and and you know this is something that could not possibly have come from the grassroots because it, it doesn't even exist. Well, let, you know, I think that's a wonderful segue, and I, and I think that's an, an interesting way to talk about. It. So why don't we uh, pause for a commercial break, Ken, and then let's come back. Let's talk more about critical race theory. And I think you're making the move that we I, I should have a second ago anyway, which is to talk about the gubernatorial race in Virginia. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back. Okay, so Ken, when we left off uh, before the break, you, we had been talking about the GOJ memo on, on school boards, but we had kind of gotten a field of that a little bit, which I figured we would, uh, and, and had gone to be talking about one specific example where the astroturfing might be the most explicit, and that's in terms of critical race theory. And you had brought this into the Virginia gubernatorial race, and you had mentioned, right, rightfully so, that this past week, uh, uh, Republican challenger uh, Glenn Youngskin had actually been pushing uh, on school. As a matter of fact, had launched an ad on Monday arguing that parents should have a larger role in school, especially as it comes to explicit sexual content. And as you had mentioned, the specific example of this uh, was the book Beloved, um, which as a matter of fact, uh, uh, wins the poll, wins the poll, no, not Pulitzer. Um, oh, what? yeah, I think the book won the Pulitzer and she may have won a Nobel. Yes, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was the Pulitzer. Okay, good. I thought yeah. I had that in my head, right? Uh, and, and, you know, as being kind of the, the quintessential example of uh, astroturfing. So I had paused you for a minute so that we could come back to this, right? So uh, here, I've kind of set you back up and I'm going to, you know, let, let you continue again because you wanted to put this in terms of the Virginia race. I know. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Toni Morrison, you know, is a no- Nobel laureate in literature. Um, her ghost story, Beloved, is a uh, um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning um, uh, ghost story. It's fiction. Um, it's being it was being taught in an AP English class, which obviously is an elective class for seniors in high school and is about fiction. Um, and, um, you know, this is the, the only actual concrete example I've even heard of in this whole recent um, uh, anti-critical race theory hysteria, where anybody's even tried to point to any um, actual uh, uh, text that's being taught and and say that this is this is a text that I'm complaining about. You know, mostly it's just at such a vague level of abstraction. You hear all this railing against critical race theory with no mention whatsoever of, you know, what materials are being taught that you um, actually object to. Um, because, of course, critical race theory is not taught. And this this AP English class wasn't teaching critical race theory. They were teaching a, a, a novel written by an African-American um, novelist. Um, uh, Nobel laureate at that. Um, but the fact that she's African-American, I guess, is enough. And that it's a book, of course, about slavery, um, but a fiction novel about, about slavery and now, about now, the immediate... Yeah, I, yeah. I, I wanted to context. So the ad and the other things that I had read about this was, wasn't putting this particular one in context of um, critical race theory so much as this seemed to be a push against sexualization in school. So it, it would still meet the topic that we were talking about. But yeah. I, I, I I didn't see. I, I, I mean, I didn't see Young and talking about it in this term in his ad. It doesn't appear to be taking that kind of critical race. Instead, yeah. what it appeared to me to be. I mean, again, we can agree or disagree, yeah. but it, at least the claim appears to be: look, this kind of sexually explicit content is not appropriate in schools, and it's just yet one more example of how schools are doing things they ought not be doing for our kids. So, I mean, we can talk about critical race theory but for that, but it at least seemed in this context that, that this was more about um, sexually explicit content. Content. Yeah, I, I think it could be a, a mixture of both there for sure. I'm sure I'm sure people did criticize it based on the sexually explicit content. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that um, it, it's an African-American woman novelist whose novel about slavery is, is the one being criticized here in the midst of this um, present, um, um, you know, sort of dog whistle about um, critical race theory being a, a, a big national moment. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that the school boards um, in, the, in the counties, um, you know, generally um, um, are reflecting the the views in the counties, which is that um, a, a novel like this is is appropriate to be taught in an AP English class. And in fact, I'll say that particular novel, which is set um, here in Cincinnati, where where I live, um, is taught not not just in AP English. It's taught to everybody who takes twelfth uh, um, grade English here. Oh. And and, uh, um, and and you know you don't have to be in an AP class. And and you know this is a city that is fifty percent African American in, in the schools, and and nobody's complaining about this. this novel being taught. And I, I, I don't know how you could possibly have a situation where um, the, the English curriculum or, or any other curriculum in the schools um, is subject to a heckler's veto by one single snowflake parent. You know, that if there's one snowflake parent out there that says, um, I don't think this, this work is appropriate for my kid, that that gives a veto over the, the the teachers, the school boards, the the curriculum, and and I don't think anybody seriously thinks that, right? So if, if you think through the logical implication of, of this argument, well, parents aren't being respected enough because here's a snowflake parent who can't stand that their kid is reading a Toni Morrison novel. Um, 
the, the logical implication of that would be nothing should be taught in the school if one parent objects. And, uh, and, and I think even the, even the people who want to complain about the Toni Morrison novel don't, don't really believe that. They don't want to have um, the stuff that they favor being taught um, subject to censorship by other parents who, who disagree with them. So it's a totally, it seems the incoherence of the whole thing to me also indicates how phony of an issue this is and how it's really much more geared towards getting uh, some people riled up with half-truths and, and straight-out lies um, to, to get them motivated to go vote in the Virginia election um, more than it's really about what, you know, what the proper educational policy should be about novels like this. Well, to give you, I mean, I think there's kind of two possibilities. I mean, and one one could be what you're saying, and that's right. Uh, and, and when you say that, I kind of think about: have, have, Are you uh, a fan? Or are you familiar with the Music Man, the uh, uh, the musical? Yes, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I do remember it. Okay, one of I'm gonna be honest. I'm out myself here, right? I already told everybody they should read the uh, the knowledge of Constitution. Uh, you should also watch the Music Man, the original, not the terrible, terrible sequel. One of my favorite musicals of all time. And in that, one of the one of the problems in the small town in Indiana is effectively right that the, uh, the Marion, the the uh, librarian, um, you know, she reads all these things. She's educated. They, you know, she reads things that are un. You, you shouldn't. Look Listen, like like beloved, effectively, right? And so the town has this kind of view of her because you know she's reading these naughty, dirty things. But really, in some ways, it's kind of well, she's educated and not not to be. She she hasn't done what she should have been doing, which is you know getting the man. Uh, so you know, I, mean, I think I, I I kind of feel some of that in that potential uh, review. I think the response to that uh, uh, from some on the right is to say, well, but look, I mean, you say that the parent is a snowflake, and that's the that's the problem here. Uh, but I'll bring in you know because we're kind of move, we're still kind of talking about the general issue and not maybe Virginia as specifically. Uh, but you know, this past week, for example, in Orange County, Florida. Um, the school board chair, uh, Teresa Jacobs, had police officers remove um, a uh, Jacob Ingalls, a parent and a speaker, during the public comment portion after he actually read a portion of uh, a book from the school. So in other words, what he did was he read the book that he was objecting to. And then the school board uh, tosses him out for using language that is inappropriate <laughs> in a public forum. Uh, uh, the specific phrase which sent libertarians into giggles uh, uh, about it because they thought this is funny that they, they're, they're going to uh, clamp down on free speech um, was uh, a reference to strap on harnesses for their favorite dildo. And it was at that point that uh, the uh, uh, the um, uh, Teresa had police officers remove Jacob and so I think for parents, what they're saying is, well, look, like you're you're you are you're even doing things to kids that we potentially you wouldn't even let us talk about in a public forum. So I, I know. So, again, if you, st if you still think it's astroturfing fair, I'm, I'm just curious, though, what I mean, do, do you think there's a possibility it's not necessarily just snowflake parents? Well, the incident you described, I, I don't know anything about. But if the facts are, as you said, then I would uh, agree with, I think, one of your points, which is that the parent should not have been um, censored either. Yes, right? yeah, I, I that would have been my point, I, right? Yeah, like, you get yeah, the book I, I and you get to talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I certainly think a parent has every right to show up at a school board meeting and read into the public record at the meeting material that's actually being taught in the schools. Um, I, I absolutely think that that parent should have that right. And, and if a parent was removed 
from a, a, a meeting uh, for, for that, that that's very wrong. Um, and, even and still, if though, listeners or yeah. you want to follow up, just, you know, uh, it's again, it's in Orange County and uh, the book in question is Gender Queer, a memoir. It's a, actually a, it's a graphic novel if anybody's interested about that. Um, I'm a fan of graphic novels, but continue, continue. And, and this was um, um, this was a uh, something that was being part taught in a course or it was just something that was in the library. Or? This was one of the things in the library. In the library, but not being taught in a, a course. Well, the question was effectively was, I'd have to, I'd have to look again. I don't think it was being taught in the course. In that, so again, I'm going to put a caveat on that. I don't think it was being taught in a course, uh, Ken. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, in that case, uh, I'll say uh, uh, two things. I, I still think that the the, the parents shouldn't have been censored, um, but. I also would say if it's not even being taught in a course and if it's something that's just available in the library, maybe even presumably because students ask the library to order it or some small number of students want to read it, but the, the school's certainly not foisting it on kids um, who don't want to read it, um, then I do think this is a, a big um, a provocation um, intending to um, create a, a, a conflict so that there can be media coverage, so that it can be divisive and so that people can get angry. And and that it's, it's really hard to imagine, you know, that anyone is actually injured by the presence in a school library of, of, of a book that, you know, almost no students would ever look at or know about or, or read. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that the the element here that's in it, again, I'm with you, you know, as a libertarian guy, I, I think you should be able to to read into the record things that are even in the library. Like, I mean. As a matter of fact, even if it wasn't in the library, I, I don't know that having uh, uh, comments on potential sexuality should be things that we can censor in an open room. Uh, but I, 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 the reason I bring that up is is that I, I, the potentiality here for the not always being astroturfing is is this idea that school boards potentially want to have these barriers between or at least it seems for some parents there'd be these barriers to what's happening and because they have a different potential set of values uh, than do some sets of parents. And again, I'm not trying to take a, a side on values. As a matter of fact, I think you should, well, anyway, that's probably, that's probably a bigger topic than we can do here. But, but so before we get, I mean, before we go down too far in that rabbit hole, because we've spent some time on that, Ken, I do want to ask you just a little bit though, about the, the Virginia race itself, right? I mean, that, that, this is what, you know, the beloved is what's got us talking about this. So right here, as of, uh, uh today, uh, um, when you're taking a look at the poll of polls, this is according to 538, uh, a couple other sources, the two, uh, uh um, the Republican challenger, Youngkin and the, uh, inc- Democratic incumbent, um, uh, McLaugh is statistically t- tied at 47.6 to 46.1%. And I know that this oftentimes this, the, the Virginia gubernatorial race is taken as at least a potential bellwether for the midterm. So you know, I know we went down that hole, but do you want to talk any about the what this might be and what you see happening in the gubernatorial race itself and as it might predict for the midterms? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's trouble for, from my perspective, certainly. I, I, I'm not happy that the race is as close as it is. Now, a, a few things I'll say about the um, Virginia races generally uh, before we get to this year's race. One is that they've been notoriously hard to poll. So I don't know how much stock we can put in the polls. I think both of the past two um, gubernatorial races, the polls were off by nine or 10 points, although in opposite directions, I think. So I think last time it was polling as close as this. And then uh, Northrop, the Democrat, actually won by about nine points, but it was polling neck and neck. Um, 
But the, the time before that, I think it went the other way. The, the, the prior Democrat was leading in the polls by double digits the whole time, and then he only won by about one point. Um, so, so at least the last two gubernatorial elections there, polls have been off by eight or nine points both times, but in opposite directions from each other. So I don't know why Virginia is so hard to poll, um, but it seems like it is. The other thing about Virginia that's interesting, you said it's a bellwether for the midterms, and that's that's true. But another, another thing you could say about that is um, – you know, midterms historically almost always go um, against the president who just won the most recent election. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I mean and, yeah. if, if, if yeah. you knew nothing else, you always want to bet that direction. Yeah. And so that's simply that's also true about the Virginia gubernatorial races. Yes. Right. So 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 we could say, well, in the Virginia gubernatorial races, they're, 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 they they are a bellwether for what's going to happen in the midterms. Or we could just <laughs> say, well, in, in both situations, they tend to go against whoever just law, whoever just won the presidency. Well, I mean, in effect of what you're saying there, and it's an important methodological point, it's that, uh, you know, it, it can be easy sometimes to say, well, A causes B causes C, when really yeah. what you're seeing is you have one variable that is causing, in fact, Two separate independent uh, events, right? So uh, the the winner of the uh, uh, the presidential race is uh, is always going to be his party is always going to be his or her party is always going to be in the, um, the 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 fighting from a negative position yeah, for the both underdog. any off term, yeah. i.e., in the case of Virginia, yeah. and or in the midterm, right? right. Which I yeah, think that, is probably yeah. right, li- likely. I think you're probably right about that. Yeah, Kevin. yeah, and I think I think interestingly, Terry McAuliffe, who's the Democratic uh, candidate in this election, he's actually the only. He's the only one who, um, in in the recent in the most recent twenty years, has um, flipped beat, that. Flipped that, yeah. So McAuliffe actually got elected right after Obama got elected, but but in all other elections in the past twenty years, um, the the um, the whoever um, got elected president, well, then one year later, somebody from the opposite party won the Virginia election. So so you know none of that's looking great for the Dems in uh, uh, Virginia, and I am worried about it. And I, I you know Virginia looked to me recently, like it had really been um, consolidating as a blue state. Well, yeah, especially but, when you take yeah. a look at the amount by which um, uh, uh, Biden wins, right? He, he wins yeah. by a pretty historic amount. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Obama won there both times and um, Hillary Clinton won there too. So um, I, yeah, I, I don't, um, you know, I, I thought that, you know, I thought that one was kind of in my in my corner. <laughs> and, uh, but I know I think it could go either way. And I actually think some of that is about uh, the success of some of these divisive ploys that we've just been talking about, that the Republicans have been very um, effective at, at ginning up what I think of as very phony kinds of divisive issues um, to um, very much energize their base and at the same time, I think the Dems are um, suffering from a little bit of the opposite, which is, um, you know, really the the Biden presidency um, has not so far delivered on a number of the hopes. You know, it, um, things were supposed to get a lot better with COVID, and that hasn't quite happened. Um, some some of these um, 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 spending bills were supposed to have already been enacted, and I think there's a little bit of an um, enthusiasm loss um, on, on the Democratic side. I think that's um, fair. As a matter of fact, I mean, can we point to anything? That has, you know, I mean, I, I don't even know what you would run on specifically yet from Biden. Well, I mean, they did um, get the first, uh, the, the, you know, the COVID stimulus bill through. So things like the child tax credit are now in place because of, of that bill um, and the ex- extensions of um, unemployment and the, the additional stimulus. Like, I think there were some legislative victories, um, at least one big one with the second COVID stimulus bill right at the very beginning of the Biden administration. Yeah. I still think ending the war in Afghanistan is a big deal, although that doesn't necessarily affect gubernatorial races. No, any. And, and in all honesty, because of the way 
that pullout ends up, you know, com- coming out, I don't think it's going to end up being something you can run on anyway, right? I mean, even for yeah. those of us, you know, uh, it was uh, it was a little interesting because Mike and I had talked about that, and you know, Mike was more inclined to say that we should have remained in a different kind of capacity. I was more open to uh, uh, to leaving, um, but I don't think any either of us saw the specifics of what went down as being the best way to pull out. And so I think what could have easily been a win ends up being yeah. something you can't, I don't think anybody's going to be able to run on that up or down the ticket, right? I, I don't think Biden is going to be saying, hey, I pulled us out of Afghanistan because of, the, because of the nature and the images of what happened. No, and I, I doubt that's even really being discussed in in Virginia because no. it's it's so non germane to the Virginia gubernatorial issues. But um, the uh, you know I, I I think the other thing you know that I would like to say positive about the Biden presidency is that he's just he has succeeded in toning toning down a lot of the divisiveness of the Trump era, and you know he's not out there insulting people every day, and his administration is going about its business more um, quietly. And, and oh, and, you, you definitely know, have yeah, to give yeah. him. Uh, yes, I, I, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. For, you actually for, for def- tone, definitely have to yeah. give him that. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, given that, but I don't know if that's something. Yeah, it's you know, not enough. Yeah, it's not, not to run on. To, I mean, like, it's I, not to run on. Exactly. I'm, a, I'm, yeah. I'm the guy who doesn't do nasty things, and right. I run. Yeah. I run yeah. my uh, office competently. Okay, right. well, great. great. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that's the right. bare minimum of what we normally expect. You know, exactly. You know, I'm with <laughs> it's you on only that. in the Trump and, era that yeah. we go. No. wow, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're telling me to fire five. Oh, shoot. And in fact, those those virtues, which I do see as virtues of the Biden administration, um, I think they don't help McAuliffe also because McAuliffe himself is seen as kind of an establishment, corporate, mainstream Democrat. And uh, I think to the extent that there's energy on the progressive side of the Democratic Party, um, they're not energized about McAuliffe either. So I think this sort of combination of um, McAuliffe's got a lot of uh, wind blowing in his face. You know, he's got a lot that he's kind of up against. And then um, uh, Youngkin is actually succeeding in really ginning up a lot of Republicans um, and getting getting them uh, very very um, outraged and very um, energized. Uh, I, I, I yeah I, I don't know that I don't know that McAuliffe's going to pull it out. I, I think he does still have a big um, registration advantage on his side right now. And if, if he can get anywhere near um, you know maybe he doesn't even get well, turn out as good as, as Youngkin. I, I hear yeah. you, but you know keep in mind you know this is this isn't a shot. It's just a statistical truth as a, as a political scientist, Democrats have a harder time turning out, especially yeah. in off-year elections and, and down yeah. ballot in a way that Republicans don't generally. Uh, and so, you know, just having that big registration, I mean, it looks good and it helps full. So I, I, I'm not trying to downplay it. But at the same time, you need that to even be competitive yeah. when you're when you're having when, when you're in an off uh, election like this. Um, one last thing I'm, I'm curious, and, and, you know, and then we're going to have to pause and we'll and and, uh, and 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 end the show. But, you know, you were talking about other things where um, Republicans are kind of making it harder. I wonder, and we're going to talk more about this on the bonus show. So join us again for the bonus show. But I wonder if once again, uh, Democrats aren't missing out on kind of the average labor. And I'm wondering if, especially in Virginia, that there are people that are not a little bit more upset. I mean, again, I, I take a look at the labor unions that are taking positions uh, on a number of high profile cases. We're going to talk about the Southwest Airlines case. Uh, you know, truckers, uh, pilots oftentimes have been areas for Democrats who are breaking with that kind of Democrat policy. I don't, I don't, and, and Virginia would be a state where you'd have that potential voter base. And I wonder if that's not part of this too. 
I, I'm not sure I fully understood the point. Um, you, in other words, I don't think Democrats, the average uh, labor worker is yeah. as democratic as they once were. I, I think Trump has pulled some of those voters. And I know we talked about that before, but uh, given the positions of a number of labor unions that seem to be in opposition to positions of the Democratic Party. Yeah, oh, I see what you're saying. No, I don't think Virginia's, um, you know, the, the northern Virginia, the, the D.C. area where a lot of population is, um, of course, there's a lot of public sector employees up there that work for the federal government. They may be unionized, but I think they're pretty squarely in the Democratic camp. Um, but if you move out of the D.C. area, um, I don't think Virginia is a very heavily unionized state. So I don't I don't know that um, organized labor other than public sector labor is, is going to play a huge okay, role in any Virginia election. Well, that's fair. Well, Ken, I think uh, we're going to have to pause here. I mean, we've gone we, we've gone along for a show, but we had a lot left to do. Uh, so if you if, if listeners, if you're interested in us talking uh, more about what's going on with the, the tax, with the most recent uh, take on with the Build Back Better bill, we're going to be leading the bonus show with that. Uh, we're going to be talking more about, like I'd mentioned a second ago, the Southwest Airlines anti-vaccine case. We're going to be talking about Rittenhouse uh, and these procedural moves. Can they be called victims? Are they rioter, uh, rioters and looters? Uh, and, and we'll go from there. But if you're interested in uh, having all of that, uh, that means that you're going to need to be a part of, uh, of our supporters. So I want to thank everybody for listening to The Politics, guys. We love having you. But if you want to be able to do things like the bonus show, we have our Discord channel, uh, access to these kind of really cool uh, um, supporters only benefits, you're going to need to want to check this out. And, and to do that, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can just go straight to politicsguys.com slash support. And there you'll see all the different varying levels of support. And I, I know one of the things that we're looking on is uh, trying to do transcripts for the show. So if you're, if you are curious about what being a supporter can mean for you, of course, one of the biggest things is going to be those supporters only shows that are released uh, at the same time as you're listening to this show, uh, head again to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Don't forget as well, even if you can't support us financially, that there's other ways that you can support the podcast. And that includes sharing these episodes, tweeting about it, Facebooking about it, or metaing about it. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to start thinking about meta. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for another show. Uh, but be that as it may, there's other ways that you can engage by sharing what you're doing. And as a matter of fact, just if you haven't already, subscribing to The Politics Guys and liking us uh, will bring us up and allow other people to see the show. And that's what it needs. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.